Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support, and I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm so pleased you chose to be here tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But before we do, let's take a moment to get out of our heads. Imagine you're wandering through the grounds of a beautiful stately home. It's a brisk winter afternoon, and everything seems white, from the clouds in the sky to the frost on the ground. The birds are chirping nearby. You're wrapped up warm and walking through a quiet walled garden where most of the plants are laying dormant, waiting for spring. You take a big stretch, lengthening your spine, releasing any tension in your shoulders. Next, you take a deep breath, feeling the rush of cool air enter your lungs. As you exhale slowly, you watch your breath turn to vapor as it condenses in front of you. As your breath disappears, so too do any worries in your mind. You feel completely at peace. Last time, Jane was in the nursery the day after her experience in the Red Room. Bessie had been unusually kind to her, bringing her lovely treats to eat, books to read, and singing comforting songs. But Jane could not eat or be roused from her sorry disposition. Soon, Mr. Lloyd, the apothecary, returned to check on Jane's progress, and Bessie was called away. This gave Mr. Lloyd the opportunity to question Jane on her life at Gateshead. She was as honest with him as she dared to be, and on leaving the house, he asked to speak with Mrs. Reed. He suggested to the lady that Jane be sent to school. Christmas came and went, with Jane being excluded from all celebrations, left alone in the nursery, with Bessie coming and going. One day, however, a gentleman named Mr. Brocklehurst came to call on Mrs. Reed and asked to see Jane. He scrutinized her and asked if she was a good little girl. And that is exactly where we pick back up, with Mrs. Reed about to interrupt the conversation. So just try to relax and breathe as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 4 continued. Mr. Brocklehurst, I believe I intimated in the letter which I wrote to you three weeks ago that this little girl 
has not quite the character and disposition I could wish, said Mrs. Reed. Should you admit her into Lowood School, I should be glad if the superintendent and teachers were requested to keep a strict eye on her and, above all, to guard against her worst fault, a tendency to deceit. I mention this in your hearing, Jane, that you may not attempt to impose on Mr. Brocklehurst. Well might I dread, well might I dislike Mrs. Reed, for it was her nature to wound me cruelly. Never was I happy in her presence. However carefully I obeyed, however strenuously I strove to please her, my efforts were still repulsed and repaid by such sentences as the above. Now, uttered before a stranger, the accusation cut me to the heart. I dimly perceived that she was already obliterating hope from the new phase of existence which she destined me to enter. I felt, though I could not have expressed the feeling, that she was sowing aversion and unkindness along my future path. I saw myself transformed under Mr. Brocklehurst's eye into an artful, noxious child. And what could I do to remedy the injury? Nothing, indeed, thought I, as I struggled to repress a sob and hastily wiped away some tears, the impotent evidences of my anguish. Deceit is indeed a sad fault in a child, said Mr. Brocklehurst. It is akin to falsehood, and all liars will have their portion in the lake burning with fire and brimstone. She shall, however, be watched, Mrs. Reed. I will speak to Miss Temple and the teachers. I should wish her to be brought up in a manner suiting her prospects, continued my benefactress, to be made useful, to be kept humble. As for the vacations, she will, with your permission, spend them always at Lowood. Your decisions are perfectly judicious, madam returned Mr. Brocklehurst. Humility is a Christian grace, and one peculiarly appropriate to the pupils of Lowood. I therefore direct that especial care shall be bestowed on its cultivation amongst them. I have studied how best to mortify in them the worldly sentiment of pride, and only the other day I had a pleasing proof of my success. My second daughter, Augusta, went with her mamma to visit the school, and on her return she exclaimed, Oh dear papa, how quiet and plain all the girls at Lowood look, with their hair combed behind their ears and their long pinafores and those little Holland pockets outside their frocks. They almost look like poor people's children. And, said she, they looked at my dress and mamma's as if they had never seen a silk gown before. This is the state of things I quite approve, returned Mrs. Reed. Had I sought all England over, I could scarcely have found a system more exactly fitting a child like Jane Eyre. Consistency, 
my dear Mr. Brocklehurst, I advocate consistency in all things. Consistency, madam, is the first of Christian duties, he replied, and it has been observed in every arrangement connected with the establishment of Lowood. Plain fare, simple attire, unsophisticated accommodations, hardy and active habits. Such is the order of the day in the house and its inhabitants. Quite right, sir, said she. I may then depend upon this child being received as a pupil at Lowood and there being trained in conformity to her position and prospects? Madam, you may. She shall be placed in that nursery of chosen plants, and I trust she will show herself grateful for the inestimable privilege of her election. I will send her then as soon as possible, Mr. Brocklehurst, for I assure you, I feel anxious to be relieved of a responsibility that was becoming too irksome. No doubt, no doubt, madam. And now I wish you a good morning. I shall return to Brocklehurst Hall in the course of a week or two. My good friend, the Archdeacon, will not permit me to leave him sooner. I shall send Miss Temple notice that she is to expect a new girl, so there will be no difficulty about receiving her. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Brocklehurst, said Mrs. Reed. Remember me to Mrs. and Miss Brocklehurst, and to Augusta, and Theodore, and Master Broughton Brocklehurst. I will, madam, he replied. Then, turning to me, he said, Little girl, here is a book entitled The Child's Guide. Read it with prayer, especially that part containing an account of the awfully sudden death of Martha G., a naughty child addicted to falsehood and deceit. With these words, Mr. Brocklehurst put into my hand a thin pamphlet sewn in a cover, and having rung for his carriage, he departed. Mrs. Reed and I were left alone. Some minutes passed in silence. She was sewing. I was watching her. Mrs. Reed might be at that time some six or seven and thirty. She was a woman of robust frame, square-shouldered and strong-limbed, not tall and, though stout, not obese. She had a somewhat large face, the underjaw being much developed and very solid. Her brow was low, her chin large and prominent, mouth and nose sufficiently regular. Under her light eyebrows glimmered an eye devoid of Ruth. Her skin was dark and opaque, her hair nearly flaxen. Her constitution was sound as a bell. Illness never came near her. She was an exact, clever manager her household and tenantry were thoroughly under her control. Her children only at times defied her authority and laughed it to scorn. She dressed well and had a presence and port calculated to set off handsome attire. Sitting on a low stool a few yards from her armchair, I examined her figure. I perused her features. In my hand, 
I held the tract containing the sudden death of the liar, to which narrative my attention had been pointed as to an appropriate warning. What had just passed, what Mrs. Reed had said concerning me to Mr. Brocklehurst, the whole tenor of their conversation was recent, raw, and stinging in my mind. I had felt every word as acutely as I had heard it plainly, and a passion of resentment formed now within me. Mrs. Reed, looking up from her work, her eye settled on mine, her fingers at the same time suspended their nimble movements. Go out of the room. Return to the nursery, was her mandate. My look, or something else, must have struck her as offensive, for she spoke with extreme, though suppressed, irritation. I got up. I went to the door. I came back again. I walked to the window across the room, then close up to her. Speak, I must. I had been trodden on severely and must turn. But how? What strength had I to dart retaliation at my antagonist? I gathered my energies and launched them in this blunt sentence. I am not deceitful. If I were, I should say I loved you. I declare I do not love you. I dislike you the worst of anybody in the world except John Reed. And this book about the liar you may give to your girl, Georgiana, for it is she who tells lies and not I. Mrs. Reed's hands lay still on her work, inactive, Her eye of ice continued to dwell freezingly on mine. What more have you to say? She asked, rather in the tone in which a person might address an opponent of adult age than such as is ordinarily used to a child. That eye of hers, that voice stirred every antipathy I had, shaking from head to foot, thrilled with ungovernable excitement, I continued, I'm glad you are no relation of mine. I will never call you aunt again as long as I live. I will never come to see you when I am grown up, and if anyone asks me, how I liked you and how you treated me, I will say the very thought of you makes me sick and that you treated me with miserable cruelty. How dare you affirm that, Jane Eyre, said she. How dare I, Mrs. Reed? How dare I? Because it is the truth You think I have no feelings and that I can do without one bit of love or kindness, but I cannot live so, and you have no pity. I shall remember how you thrust me back, roughly and violently thrust me back into the red room and locked me up there to my dying day, though I was in agony Though I cried out while suffocating with distress, have mercy, have mercy, Aunt Reed. And that punishment you made me suffer because your wicked boy struck me, knocked me down for nothing. I will tell anybody who asks me questions this exact tale. People think you a good woman, but you are bad, hard-hearted. You are deceitful. 
Ere I had finished this reply, my soul began to expand, to exult with the strangest sense of freedom, of triumph I ever felt. It seemed as if an invisible bond had burst and that I had struggled out into unhoped-for liberty. Not without cause was this sentiment. Mrs. Reed looked frightened. Her work had slipped from her knee. She was lifting up her hands, rocking herself to and fro, and even twisting her face as if she would cry. You are under a mistake, said she. What is the matter with you? Why do you tremble so violently? Would you like to drink some water? No, Mrs. Reed, said I. Is there anything else you wish for, Jane? I assure you, I desire to be your friend, she replied. Not you, said I. You told Mr. Brocklehurst I had a bad character, a deceitful disposition, and I'll let everybody at Lowood know what you are and what you have done. Jane, you don't understand these things, said she. Children must be corrected for their faults. Deceit is not my fault, I said wildly. But you are passionate, Jane, that you must allow. Now return to the nursery, there's a dear, and lie down a little. I am not your dear, I returned. I cannot lie down. Send me to school soon, Mrs. Reed for I hate to live here. I will indeed send her to school soon, murmured Mrs. Reed, sotto voce, and gathering up her work, she abruptly quitted the apartment. I was left there alone, winner of the field. It was the hardest battle I had fought and the first victory I had gained. I stood a while on the rug where Mr. Brocklehurst had stood, and I enjoyed my conqueror's solitude. First, I smiled to myself and felt elated, but this fierce pleasure subsided in me as fast as did the accelerated throb of my pulses. A child cannot quarrel with its elders as I had done and not give its furious feelings uncontrolled play as I had given mine without experiencing afterwards the pang of remorse and the chill of reaction. A ridge of lighted heath, alive, glancing, Devouring would have been an emblem of my mind when I accused and menaced Mrs. Reed. The same ridge, black and blasted after the flames are dead, would have represented as rightly my subsequent condition when half an hour's silence and reflection had shown me the madness of my conduct and the dreariness of my hated and hating position. Something of vengeance I had tasted for the first time, as aromatic wine it seemed on swallowing, warm and racy. Its after-flavor, metallic and corroding, gave me a sensation as if I had been poisoned, Willingly would I now have gone and asked Mrs. Reed's pardon, but I knew, partly from experience and partly from instinct, that was the way to make her repulse me with double scorn. 
thereby re-exciting every turbulent impulse of my nature. I would fain exercise some better faculty than that of fierce speaking, fain find nourishment for some less fiendish feeling than that of sombre indignation. I took a book, Some Arabian Tales. I sat down and endeavoured to read. I could make no sense of the subject. My own thoughts swam always between me and the page I had usually found fascinating. I opened the glass door in the breakfast room. The shrubbery was quite still. The black frost reigned, unbroken by sun or breeze through the grounds. I covered my head and arms with the skirt of my frock and went to walk in a part of the plantation which was quite sequestrated. But I found no pleasure in the silent trees, the falling fir cones, the congealed relics of autumn russet leaves, swept by past winds in heaps, and now stiffened together. I leaned against a gate and looked into an empty field where no sheep were feeding, where the short grass was nipped and blanched. It was a very grey day, a most opaque sky canopied all. Thence flakes fell at intervals which settled on the hard path and on the hoary lee without melting. I stood, a wretched child enough, whispering to myself over and over again, what shall I do? What shall I do? All at once I heard a clear voice call, Miss Jane, where are you? Come to lunch. It was Bessie, I knew well enough, but I did not stir. Her light step came tripping down the path. You naughty little thing, she said. Why don't you come when you are called? Bessie's presence, compared with the thoughts over which I had been brooding, seemed cheerful, even though, as usual, she was somewhat cross. The fact is, after my conflict with, and victory over, Mrs. Reed, I was not disposed to care much for the nursemaid's transitory anger, and I was disposed to bask in her youthful lightness of heart. I just put my two arms round her and said, Come, Bessie, don't scold. The action was more frank and fearless than any I was habituated to indulge in. Somehow it pleased her. Oh, you are a strange child, Miss Jane, said she as she looked down at me. A little roving, solitary thing. You were going to school, I suppose. I nodded. And won't you be sorry to leave poor Bessie? She asked. What does Bessie care for me? She is always scolding me, I replied. Because you are such a strange, frightened, shy little thing, she said. You should be bolder. What? I asked. To get more knocks. Nonsense, said she. But you are rather put upon, that's certain. My mother said when she came to see me last week, she would not like a little one of her own to be in your place. Now, come in and I have some good news for you. Don't think you have, Bessie, I replied. Child, what do you mean? 
What sorrowful eyes you fix on me, she returned. Well, but Mrs. and the young ladies and Master John are going out to tea this afternoon and you shall have tea with me. I'll ask Cook to bake you a little cake. Then you shall help me look over your drawers, for I am soon to pack your trunk. Mrs. intends you to leave Gateshead in a day or two, and you shall choose what toys you like to take with you. Bessie, you must promise not to scold me any more till I go, I said. Well, I will, she replied. But mind, you are a very good girl. Don't be afraid of me. Don't start when I chance to speak rather sharply. It's so provoking. I don't think I shall ever be afraid of you again, Bessie, because I have got used to you, and I shall soon have another set of people to dread. If you dread them, they'll dislike you, said she. As to you, Bessie, I replied, I don't dislike you, miss. I believe I'm fonder of you than of all the others. You don't show it, I remarked. You sharp little thing. You've got quite a new way of talking. What makes you so venturesome and hardy? Why, I shall soon be away from you. And besides... I was going to say something about what had passed between me and Mrs. Reed, but on second thoughts I considered it better to remain silent on that head. So, you are glad to leave me? Bessie asked. Not at all, Bessie, said I. Indeed, just now, I'm rather sorry. Just now? And rather, how coolly my little lady says it, she replied. I dare say now if I were to ask you for a kiss, you wouldn't give it to me. You'd say you'd rather not. I'll kiss you and welcome, said I. Bend your head down. Bessie stooped. We mutually embraced and I followed her into the house, quite comforted. That afternoon lapsed in peace and harmony, and in the evening, Bessie told me some of her most enchanting stories and sang me some of her sweetest songs. Even for me, life had its gleams of sunshine. Chapter 5 Five o'clock had hardly struck on the morning of the 19th of January when Bessie brought a candle into my closet and found me already up and nearly dressed. I had risen half an hour before her entrance and had washed my face and put my clothes on by the light of a half-moon just setting whose rays streamed through the narrow window near my crib. I was to leave Gateshead that day by a coach which passed the lodge gates at 6am. Bessie was the only person yet risen. She had lit a fire in the nursery where she now proceeded to make my breakfast. Few children can eat when excited with the thoughts of a journey, nor could I. Bessie, having pressed me in vain to take a few spoonfuls of the boiled milk and bread she had prepared for me, wrapped up some biscuits in a paper and put them into my bag. Then she helped me on with my pelisse and bonnet and wrapping herself in a shawl, she and I left the nursery. As we passed Mrs. Reed's bedroom, she said, Will you go in and bid Mrs. goodbye? No, Bessie, I replied, 
She came to my crib last night when you had gone down to supper and said I need not disturb her in the morning, or my cousins either. And she told me to remember that she had always been my best friend and to speak of her and be grateful to her accordingly. What did you say, miss? Bessie asked. Nothing. I covered my face with the bedclothes and turned from her to the wall. That was wrong, Miss Jane. It was quite right, Bessie. Your missus has not been my friend. She has been my foe. Oh, Miss Jane, don't say so, Bessie replied. Goodbye to Gateshead, said I as we passed through the hall and went out at the front door. The moon was set and it was very dark. Bessie carried a lantern whose light glanced on wet steps and gravel road sodden by a recent thaw. Raw and chill was the winter morning. My teeth chattered as I hastened down the drive. There was a light in the porter's lodge. When we reached it, we found the porter's wife just kindling her fire. My trunk, which had been carried down the evening before, stood corded at the door. It wanted but a few minutes of six, and shortly after that hour had struck, the distant roll of wheels announced the coming coach. I went to the door and watched its lamps approach rapidly through the gloom. she going by herself? asked the porter's wife. Yes, Bessie answered. How far is it? The porter's wife inquired. Fifty miles? Bessie replied. Mm, what a long way. I wonder Mrs. Reed is not afraid to trust her so far alone, said the porter's wife. The coach drew up. There it was at the gates with its four horses and its top laden with passengers. The guard and coachman loudly urged haste. My trunk was hoisted up. I was taken from Bessie's neck, to which I clung with kisses. Be sure and take good care of her, cried she to the guard as he lifted me into the inside. Aye, aye, was the answer. The door was slapped to. A voice said, all right, and on we drove. Thus I was severed from Bessie and Gateshead, thus whirled away to unknown and, as I then deemed, remote and mysterious regions. I remember but little of the journey. I only know that the day seemed to me of a preternatural length and that we appeared to travel over hundreds of miles of road. We passed through several towns, and in one, a very large one, the coach stopped. The horses were taken out, and the passengers alighted to dine. I was carried into an inn, where the guard wanted me to have some dinner, but as I had no appetite, he left me in an immense room with a fireplace at each end, a chandelier pendant from the ceiling, and a little red gallery high up against the wall, filled with musical instruments. Here I walked about for a long time, feeling very strange and mortally apprehensive of someone coming in and kidnapping me for I believed in kidnappers, their exploits having frequently figured in Bessie's fireside chronicles. At last, the guard returned. 
once more I was stowed away in the coach, my protector mounted his own seat, sounded his hollow horn, and away we rattled over the stony street. The afternoon came on wet and somewhat misty. As it waned into dusk, I began to feel that we were getting very far indeed from Gateshead. We ceased to pass through towns. The country changed. Great grey hills heaved up round the horizon. As twilight deepened, we descended a valley, dark with wood, and long after night had overclouded the prospect, I heard a wild wind rushing amongst the trees. Lulled by the sound, I at last dropped asleep. I had not long slumbered when the sudden cessation of motion awoke me. The coach door was open, and a person, like a servant, was standing at it. I saw her face and dress by the light of the lamps. Is there a little girl called Jane Eyre here? she asked. I answered yes, and then was lifted out. My trunk was handed down, and the coach instantly drove away. I was stiff with long sitting and bewildered with the noise and motion of the coach. Gathering my faculties, I looked about me. Rain, wind, and darkness filled the air. Nevertheless, I dimly discerned a wall before me and a door open in it. Through this door, I passed with my new guide. She shut and locked it behind her. There was now visible a house or houses for the building spread far, with many windows and lights burning in some. We went up a broad, pebbly path, splashing wet, and were admitted at a door. Then the servant led me through a passage into a room with a fire where she left me alone. I stood and warmed my numb fingers over the blaze. Then I looked round. There was no candle, but the uncertain light from the hearth showed by intervals, papered walls, carpet, curtains, shining mahogany furniture. It was a parlour, not so spacious or splendid as the drawing room at Gateshead, but comfortable enough. I was puzzling to make out the subject of a picture on the wall when the door opened and an individual carrying a light entered. Another followed closely behind The first was a tall lady with dark hair, dark eyes, and a pale and large forehead. Her figure was partly enveloped in a shawl. Her countenance was grave, her bearing erect. The child is very young to be sent alone, said she, putting her candle down on the table. She considered me attentively for a minute or two, then further added, She had better be put to bed soon. She looks tired. Are you tired? She asked, placing her hand on my shoulder. A little, ma'am, I replied. And hungry too, no doubt, said she. Let her have some supper before she goes to bed, Miss Miller. Is this the first time you have left your parents to come to school, my little girl? I explained to her that I had no parents. She inquired how long they had been dead. 
then how old I was, what was my name, whether I could read, write, and sew a little. Then she touched my cheek gently with her forefinger and saying she hoped I should be a good child, dismissed me along with Miss Miller. The lady I had left might be about twenty-nine. The one who went with me appeared some years younger. The first impressed me by her voice, look, and air. Miss Miller was more ordinary, ruddy in complexion, though of a careworn countenance, hurried in gait and action, like one who had always a multiplicity of tasks on hand. She looked, indeed, what I afterwards found she really was, an under-teacher. Led by her, I passed from compartment to compartment, from passage to passage, of a large and irregular building, till emerging from the total and somewhat dreary silence pervading that portion of the house we had traversed, we came upon the hum of many voices. Presently, we entered a wide, long room with a great deal of tables, two at each end, on each of which burnt a pair of candles, and seated all round on benches, a congregation of girls of every age, from nine or ten to twenty. Seen by the dim light of the dips, their number to me appeared countless, though not in reality exceeding eighty. They were uniformly dressed in brown stuff frocks of quaint fashion and long holland pinafores. It was the hour of study. They were engaged in conning over their tomorrow's task, and the hum I had heard was the combined result of their whispered repetitions. Miss Miller signed to me to sit on a bench near the door. Then, walking up to the top of the long room, she called out, Monitors, collect the lesson books and put them away. Four tall girls arose from different tables and going round, gathered the books and removed them. Mrs. Miller again gave the word of command. Monitors, fetch the supper trays. The tall girls went out and returned presently, each bearing a tray with portions of something, I knew not what, arranged thereon, and a pitcher of water and mug in the middle of each tray. The portions were handed round. Those who liked took a draught of the water, the mug being common to all. When it came to my turn, I drank, for I was thirsty, but did not touch the food. Excitement and fatigue rendering me incapable of eating. I saw now, however, that it was a thin oaten cake shared into fragments. The meal over, prayers were read by Miss Miller and the classes filed off, two and two, upstairs. Overpowered by this time with weariness, I scarcely noticed what sort of place the bedroom was, except that, like the schoolroom, I saw it was very long. Tonight I was to be Miss Miller's bedfellow. She helped me to undress. When I laid down, I glanced at the long rows of beds, each of which was quickly filled with two occupants. In ten minutes, the single light was extinguished, 
and amidst silence and complete darkness, I fell asleep. The night passed rapidly. I was too tired even to dream. I only woke once to hear the wind rave in furious gusts and the rain fall in torrents and to be sensible that Miss Miller had taken her place by my side. When I again unclosed my eyes, a loud bell was ringing. The girls were up and dressing. Day had not yet begun to dawn, and a rushlight or two burned in the room. I too rose reluctantly. It was bitter cold, and I dressed as well as I could for shivering and washed when there was a basin at liberty, which did not occur soon, as there was but one basin to six girls on the stands down the middle of the room. Again, the bell rang. All formed in file, two and two, and in that order descended the stairs and entered the cold and dimly lit schoolroom. Here prayers were read by Miss Miller. Afterwards, she called out, Form classes. A great tumult succeeded for some minutes, during which Miss Miller repeatedly said, Silence and order. When it subsided, I saw them all drawn up in four semicircles before four chairs placed at four tables. All held books in their hands, and a great book, like a Bible, lay on each table before the vacant seat. A pause of some seconds succeeded, filled up by the low, vague hum of numbers. Miss Miller walked from class to class, hushing this indefinite sound. A distant bell tinkled. Immediately, three ladies entered the room. Each walked to a table and took her seat. Miss Miller assumed the fourth vacant chair, which was that nearest the door, and around which the smallest number of children were assembled. To this inferior class I was called and placed at the bottom of it. Business now began. The day's collect was repeated. Then certain texts of scripture were said, and to those succeeded a protracted reading of chapters in the Bible which lasted an hour. By the time that exercise was terminated, day had fully dawned. The indefatigable bell now sounded for the fourth time. The classes were marshalled and marched into another room for breakfast. How glad I was to behold a prospect of getting something to eat. I was now nearly sick from inanition, having taken so little the day before. The refectory was a great, low-ceiled, gloomy room. On two long tables smoked basins of something hot, which, however, to my dismay, sent forth an odour far from inviting. I saw a universal manifestation of discontent when the fumes of the repast met the nostrils of those destined to swallow it. From the van of the procession, the tall girls of the first class rose the whispered words, Disgusting. Porridge is burnt again. Silence, said a voice not that of Miss Miller, but of one of the upper teachers, a little and dreary personage, smartly dressed 
but of somewhat morose aspect, who installed herself at the top of one table, while a more buxom lady presided at the other. I looked in vain for her I had first seen the night before. She was not visible. Miss Miller occupied the foot of the table where I sat, and a strange, foreign-looking, elderly lady, the French teacher, as I afterwards found, took the corresponding seat at the other board. A long grace was said, and a hymn sung. Then a servant brought in some tea for the teachers, and the meal began. Ravenous, and now very faint, I devoured a spoonful or two of my portion without thinking of its taste, but the first edge of hunger blunted, I perceived I had got in hand a nauseous mess. Burnt porridge is almost as bad as rotten potatoes. Famine itself soon sickens over it. The spoons were moved slowly. I saw each girl taste her food and try to swallow it, but in most cases the effort was soon relinquished. Breakfast was over and none had breakfasted, thanks being returned for what we had not got and a second hymn chanted. The refectory was evacuated for the schoolroom. I was one of the last to go out, and in passing the tables I saw one teacher take a basin of the porridge and taste it. She looked at the others. All their countenances expressed displeasure, and one of them, the stout one, whispered, Abominable stuff! How shameful. A quarter of an hour passed before lessons again began, during which the schoolroom was in a glorious tumult. For that space of time, it seemed to be permitted to talk loud and more freely, and they used their privilege. The whole conversation ran on the breakfast, which one and all abused roundly. Poor things, it was the sole consolation they had. Miss Miller was now the only teacher in the room. A group of great girls standing about her spoke with serious and sullen gestures. I heard the name of Mr. Brocklehurst pronounced by some lips, at which Miss Miller shook her head disapprovingly, but she made no great effort to check the general wrath. Doubtless, she shared in it. A clock in the schoolroom struck nine. Miss Miller left her circle and, standing in the middle of the room, called out, Silence! To your seats! Discipline prevailed. In five minutes, the confused throng was resolved into order, and comparative silence quelled the babel clamor of tongues. The upper teachers now punctually resumed their posts, but still all seemed to wait. Ranged on benches down the sides of the room, the eighty girls sat, motionless and erect. A quaint assemblage they appeared, all with plain locks combed from their faces, not a curl visible, in brown dresses made high and surrounded by a narrow tucker above the throat with little pockets of holland, shaped something like a highlander's purse, tied in the front of their frocks and destined to serve the purpose of a work bag. All, too, wearing woolen stockings 
and country-made shoes fastened with brass buckles. Above twenty of those clad in this costume were full-grown girls, or rather young women. It suited them ill and gave an air of oddity even to the prettiest. I was still looking at them and also at intervals examining the teachers, none of whom precisely pleased me, for the stout one was a little coarse, the dreary one not a little fierce, the foreigner harsh, and Miss Miller, poor thing, looked purple, weather-beaten, and overworked, when as my eye wandered from face to face, the whole school rose simultaneously as if moved by a common spring. What was the matter? I had heard no order given. I was puzzled.